Welcome to On Publishing from the Binary Agency. This is Alex Field. And this is Ingrid Beck. Every week, we talk to professionals from the world of publishing. Our goal is to educate, inspire, encourage, and inform. Let's get started. On today's episode of On Publishing, we talk with Courtney Mom. Courtney is the author of the novels Costa Alegre, which was a Goop Book Club pick and one of Glamour Magazine's top books of the decade. I am having so much fun here without you and Touch. Those were both New York Times Editor's Choice books and NPR Best Book of the Year selections, as well as the new um, book that just came out in January called Before and After the Book Deal, A Writer's Guide to Finishing, Publishing, Promoting, and Surviving Your First Book. Courtney's writing has been widely published in such outlets as the New York Times, O, the Oprah Magazine, and Poets and Writers. She's the founder of a collaborative retreat program called The Cabins, and she also writes a writing advice newsletter called Get Published, Stay Published that you can sign up for now at CourtneyMom.com. We just really uh, had a great conversation with Courtney. She had tons of advice um, for authors and aspiring writers, and it just was a, a very helpful, practical conversation. Yeah, it was wonderful to talk with her. You know, there are a lot of great writing books out there that we love and we talk about. I think of Anne Lamott's uh, Bird by Bird. I think of On Writing, Stephen King. But there aren't that many books that that go deep into the process and then also talk about, OK, what are the what are the basics of, of getting a deal? What does it look like when you have an agent? How do I promote a book? All the different things around uh, the writing process. And uh, and Courtney's written, I think, what will become one of the, the definitive guides for that that just came out. So I, it was really cool to hear her perspective as a novelist, having written several very, very different novels, mm-hmm. and now uh, a super helpful guide. I, I think this will be a really fun conversation for people right in the thick of the process, wherever they're at. Courtney talked a little bit about her own experiences, um, her writing process, what that looks like. Um, And then she also highlighted the fact that before and after the book deal, she talked to, I think, 175 contributors. So it definitely incorporates a lot of experiences from a wide variety of authors um, who have been through the process and who share their their insight and also, I think, industry insiders as well. So um, it's a really comprehensive and helpful resource for authors. Yeah. Some of the things she shared, I think, uh, well, honestly, will be helpful for me. She talked about how do you silence your inner critic? And mm-hmm. she talked about sort of writing and, and getting into that that zone where you're having fun writing and not editing yourself, which people talk about. But I felt like her some of her ideas and techniques there will be helpful for lots of writers. And so, you know, she's someone who's in the trenches. Not only is she creating content now for writers and helping other people, but she's she's been there. She's writing a memoir right now. She's doing it. Before we get to today's episode with Courtney Mom, uh, take a look at thebinderyagency.com. That's our website. That's where we host this podcast. And also, you can find articles on the publishing process. You can find a bunch of different ebooks as well, where we've we've provided some very simple helps for people at various stages in the writing or publishing process. And in addition to that, if you go to the website for the first time, put your email in, you can download our free book proposal template. That's Basically, something that will help you create a proposal for your book, your idea, to then share with literary agents, publishers, and others. And that's for free. So uh, go check out thebinderyagency.com right now. And if you get a chance, subscribe to this podcast for new episodes. Give us a a review if you would. We'd appreciate it very much. And uh, without further ado, uh, we'll get right to our interview with Courtney Mott. Courtney, we'd love to start with where you began. Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Were you scribbling in notebooks as a kid or reading a ton? Or was there a moment of decision where you just were like, oh my gosh, I have to be a writer? I I always wanted to be a writer. Um, And I was pretty precocious when I was a little girl and 
put books together, wow. you know, using wallpaper mm. as a, a <laughs> book jacket. Yeah. And I, I would take over my dad's office um, and use his, I think he had an electronic typewriter. He was okay. sort of fancy <laughs> <laughs> um, back in the 80s. And I was very lucky because early on, I had a lot of support from teachers. Mm-hmm. So shout out to teachers yeah. who not only supported me, but indulged, you know, showed me how to make book jackets. Um, I write about Mrs. Vici Domini in my acknowledgement, who was the first person who showed me that wallpaper made a really good book jacket. And as time went on, as early as eighth and ninth grade, I had a, a teacher. Um, I still think of him as Mr. Schwartz, but he does have a first name, <laughs> Jeffrey. Uh, he encouraged me, you know, to submit to contests. And um, he, he encouraged me to uh, apply to the Young Writers Program at Breadloaf and, and things like that. So uh, for better or for worse, I sort of thought of myself as a writer pretty early on, which is, like, I think, one of the reasons I, I did not pursue an MFA. But yeah, no, I always wanted to be a writer. That being said, I never thought that, you know, out the gate, I would earn a living from books or anything. I, I just sort of gravitated towards other industries where I could apply my um, writing skills. Well, Courtney, as you as you know, uh, we we have a lot of writers listening right now. A lot of people who want to work in the publishing industry. I wonder if you would just take us back to your very first book, your first manuscript, that first book deal. How did that come about? What was that like for you as someone who dreamed about being a writer and was creating book jackets with uh, wallpaper? Um, what, was, <laughs> yeah, what was that? like for you just take us in that in that process a little bit well let's see I mean it was a it's like a rocket ship toward my dream that unfortunately crashed because my first sort of unofficial book deal you know it wasn't we didn't have a contract but it was via what did I have back then a flip phone wow. was around I guess 2002 or something this was with Doubleday and I was working I had an agent and I was working on revisions per my editor's request and I worked and worked and worked and long story short um, I was living in France and by, by the time I, I eventually moved back to America and I moved to New York I was supposed to meet this editor and um you know, sign some papers. <laughs> and uh, she pulled out of the Ooh. whole thing. Oh, wow. And my agent at that time, I'm on my third, he was my first, <laughs> he was positive that it was going to sell. She was the first person who had seen it. And uh, 18 editors later, he was like, okay, so this is going to go in a closet now or we'll wow. move on to something else. So my first book deal was, it was like a Hallmark movie or <laughs> yeah. something, you know, like a revenge story. And so it, it didn't actually come, you know, on paper mm-hmm. <laughs> until 10 oh. years later, a full wow. 10 years later, multiple um, other manuscripts that I didn't necessarily try to get published, but you know, was doing the fail, fail better approach. So my first book deal came 10 years after the fact with my a third agent. And, and it was, um, you know, for that reason, I think even more thrilling, because I, I just sort of felt especially because it was the same manuscript. I mean, it, it was the same premise and the same characters, but I it had been completely rewritten. And I just remember being so proud of myself for it's not that I didn't abandon the project because I, I sort of did. I mean, I moved on, but more I was proud of myself for having the wherewithal to pick it up and go through an incredibly hard, hefty and quick revision because I was heavily pregnant mm. and wanted to get the whole thing done before you know I had a child. Yeah. So it was an amazing moment. I had just been swimming in a river that was by our house um, we've since moved but and, and I was so hot and so pregnant I mean I think I was like four weeks away and I don't even think I had any, anything on I was sitting I had just come out of the river and I saw my agent called and you know I had like a towel on and my hair was dripping all over my phone and <laughs> she told me you know it had sold to Sally Kim and I was just like I, I don't know just <laughs> pretty amazed but i i couldn't like you know pop open champagne or anything because i was so pregnant yeah, right and it was weird <laughs> it was a very sort of um revelatory of what a professional author life would be because that night like i was still working in marketing and branding and i had a huge client presentation 
I think for Hertz. And I had to work till like two in the morning on my PowerPoint. And oh, I thought, well, wow. you know, <laughs> I guess this is how it goes. You know, you have a sign of success, but you have to keep working. <laughs> <laughs> so if I heard you correctly, Courtney, I mean, the first novel you wrote was the same, same premise, same characters yeah. as the one you pitched and almost had a deal for 10 years before, but it fell through. And that became, I am having so much fun here without you. Exactly. That That is right. Yeah. It was called the blue bear, but yeah, that is the manuscript. And it was funny with my, my third agent, we were getting ready to submit um, another novel to editors. And she finally said to me like, you know what? I don't think this is your debut novel. It's just too niche. It was sort of a wacky book that was written entirely from the point of view of a mute John Mayer, the, you know, your body is a wonderland singer, (laughs) a little bit of a concept project. And, uh, you know, that was like a whiplash moment for me because I was, oh, you know, I thought we were going out with this book. And she said, do you have anything else? And I thought, well, I have tons of other manuscripts, but nothing I want anyone to see except for, you know, this one book. But I never... I really, I didn't want to revisit it. It was something, you know, it just sort of broke in my heart. And, but she convinced me to let her see it. And then when she read the first couple of chapters, she said, this is it. This is your debut novel, but you have to, you know, completely rewrite it. <laughs> I'm so curious yeah. about the mute John Mayer. I, I know. I yeah. I, I know. Every, every, every two years or so, my agent, Rebecca calls me and she's like, do we resuscitate the John Mayer project? Or, you know, what do we do? Is, is it the time? Is it the moment? And we can never decide what to do with this because ultimately there was a publisher who had seen it and they I refused to fictionalize it. Like it had to be. John. And they said, um, we need his permission. So John, if you're listening, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we would love it. If John was listening to this podcast, that you would never be know. thrilling. <laughs> so yeah. you, sh- you share a lot of insights. So your new book is um, before and after the book deal, a writer's guide to finishing publishing, promoting and surviving your first book. Um, and you share a lot of insights in there about your own writing process. Um, and so I'd love to hear, you know, how, what does your process look like? What is it different when you're writing fiction versus nonfiction? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's funny because for a long time, I mean a long time, 20 years maybe, I always thought of myself as sort of a first draft kind of gal. You know, I might outline and, you know, once I have the project's skeleton in mind, off I go and it comes out, obviously not perfect, but the draft stays the draft and I revise into it. But actually that's proven completely untrue. (laughs) And I'm someone who now has to write an entire draft to figure out what it is that I actually want to write about, which is not a process that I recommend at all. Um, (laughs) And it's one I've been in denial about for quite a while, but um, I finally just sort of faced the music and I thought, well, it's okay. If I think about this, not as an failure or an error, then really what it is, is, you know, the first couple of drafts are just me telling myself the story. And honestly, I need that process to even find out like what genre I'm writing. So for example, I worked, um, I guess the better part of, I don't know, last year or something on a novel and I wrote the entire novel. And of course I did go through, you know, a couple of weeks where I thought it was good and like that we'd be moving towards publication. And uh, through my agent's feedback, (laughs) I I realized, well, ultimately I realized that it was supposed to be a memoir and that the things that really mattered to me and what had pushed me to write that novel in the first place were things that I had really wanted to explore in my own life. But I, I actually had to write that entire novel and I did a lot of research and that's happened to me before where I wrote maybe 30,000 words of a novel to realize that it needed to be a personal essay. And, Mm, you know, Costa Alegre, for example, my third novel, um, same thing. Like I really did think of myself as someone who gets an idea and four months later, you know, is putting it into effect in some way, researching, starting a project. But in fact, I am like a hoarder so, so of <laughs> ideas. So all of my projects, I can link back to something that I've been carrying around for a long time. So Costa Alegre, for example, was funnily enough, born from a short story called Notes from Mexico 
that takes place in the same part of Mexico as Costa Alegre that I brought to the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop as a student in 2011. Funnily enough, everyone except for one person hated it. Um, (laughs) I went on to turn that into a chat book, which came out under the same title, Notes from Mexico. And then ultimately in 2019, it was published as Costa Alegre with Tin House, which is sort of a funny full circle story. Um, And the project that I'm hoping to embark on, I don't know, maybe in a year is a novel that I started researching like eight years ago and just pivoted away from for some reason. So I don't know, I hold on to these things in uh, like a like an ex-lover or something. And then I come <laughs> back to them. It's, again, I, I don't know. I don't know that anyone needs to copy my process. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's encouraging that things that you started a long time ago kind of come back around that yeah. um, or things that you've been interested in also come to be meaningful later on when you start writing about that. So, uh, you know, sort of that n- nothing is wasted. Yeah, I think that's true because even in the novels I abandoned, either I learned something or there were, I learned something from research that I could eventually turn into a non-fiction, you know, an essay, or mm-hmm. I got funny anecdotes for dinner parties. Or, right. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think uh, things are lost when you... Mm-hmm decide that a manuscript is not working. And ultimately, that's a pretty important skill set to develop, you know, the ability to say, huh, this isn't working, or it's not working in the form, the box in which I'm trying to shove it. You Mm -hmm. know, it -hmm. should be an op-ed, it should be an essay, or the reverse, this short story wants to be a novel and to sort of allow it to be the thing um, that it can flourish as, I think is really a mark of maturity. Uh, for, of, of a writer. Courtney, you, you write about how, and you recommend to like assess your own creative energy on a particular <laughs> day of the week yeah. and, and then, you know, build your writing a schedule around how you're feeling that day. Do you have a particular schedule? Do you, do you write every single morning at the same time or is it really, does it, is it fluid? Does it flow like that? And how did you come to that? <laughs> um, well, I have a very strict kind of approach actually, which is that I reserve Mondays and Tuesdays for my creative writing. I mean, obviously life creeps in, you know, right now I'm on book tour. So it's hard to say to someone like a Powell's, <laughs> I cannot do an event on Tuesday, but, but in general, Monday and Tuesdays are sacrosanct. Um, I reserve them only for my writing, not for, you know, guest blog posts or um, blurbing or emails or any of the other things or outside work like you said, I assess my energy. I know by the end of the week, I don't have a lot of creative juice. So I'll, the end of the week, I'm going to leave for errands because the beginning of the week, I just let everything go to hell. Like we don't have enough food in the (laughs) fridge, you know, we're eating grilled cheese over and over. And I just don't care. The house looks like a mess. And, (laughs) and I do have a partner and it's not like I'm responsible for all of this, but he, he might say something like, Hey, I've, done groceries the last 18 times you think you could step out and I'll say no it's Monday it's Tuesday I'll put up an out of office um and then you know Wednesday is usually where I'm itching to do frivolous things (laughs) look online see what's happening what are people yelling about that's when I'll start I'll schedule interviews if I have any and things like that and um I came to that because I have been a freelancer I'm almost 42. And basically, even when I was in college, so like 20 years. um, And like most freelancers, I have to wear a lot of hats. I have many, many, many different assignments with a rotating cast of deadlines. And until I just shut down and reserved two days, I just was always like, okay, well, there's 15 places I could spend my energy. Um, And it was hard to see the priority, especially with my creative writing. If it was a novel, it was really hard to sink in. You have to get a little feral with with Mm -hmm. book length projects. And it was (laughs) virtually impossible to sink into something and feel like my time was porous. Like a client could reach me or a friend could reach out or want to socialize, you know. So shutting everything down, putting up an out of office, I've sort of trained my friends. 
I mean, I can't keep people from texting me, but I, I put up the do not disturb and that allows me to almost have a mini retreat on Mondays and Tuesdays where I can get from 8.30 to 3.30, you know, as long as my daughter's well and is in school, I can reach that feral state uh, temporarily. And and that feels amazing to me. And, and then something else I'm pretty strict about or try to be is uh, not working on the weekends and really separating work week from time off, um, even when I have 100,000 things. And from t- I mean, right now is a particularly busy time. So I have on Sunday mornings had to devote some time to email and admin, but I'm a firm believer that people should take time off. Great. Can you share some of your, you wrote about this a little bit in before and after the the book deal, but I'd love for you to share some of your best advice for silencing your inner critic. I know that's something that many writers struggle with. Um, and, you know, maybe you could mention the technique that you yeah. talk about in the book about clown school. So, Oh, clown school. Oh God. Well, don't go to clown school. That was, I, I went to clown school to write the novel that is pro- is never going to come out. I don't think unless okay. I return to it. Um, but, but yeah, in, oh God, in clown school, the teacher taught, I'm like having PTSD. I, I did not love clown I'm school. Sorry. Um, it's okay. But he taught, he, he, he taught us, uh, or rather insisted that we walk around the room. We had to do this sort of public walking exercises, really traumatic. Um, uh, and he said that he insisted that we walk at the speed of fun, which is when you're going fast enough that you can't hear your inner critic. So, that was fun advice I put in the book for people, you know, whatever that means for people, just like don't labor after every sentence, but more concrete things that I do that I think work really well, like on my Mondays and Tuesdays, I don't want to say quantity over quality, but like, I want to be in the flow, you know, I don't want to be nitpicky. I want to, I want to just go with it because I know that I can revise on other days. It's a different kind of energy. So what I'll do is if I stumble upon a section, I get to a place where I'm like, oh man, I need to research Italian automobiles from the 1940s here. But like, I don't want to divert my energy because I'll go down a rabbit hole and end up on Twitter. I'll just write something in parentheses, like you need a couple lines here about what cars were, were available and you know what the interior looks like close the parentheses and I'll highlight the whole thing uh-huh. um, likewise if I use a word and it's just not right or a metaphor is pretty crappy or there's a bad transition instead of beating myself up about it again I'll highlight it and then on the days, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, where I have a different kind of energy, the energy to revise or the energy to research, which you know can feel like procrastination because so it feels fun. Then all I have to do <laughs> is scan my document. I work on a computer and I scan it and I look for the highlights and then I can go in there like a surgeon and fix it without breaking my flow on those writing days. So I find that works really well because I know I have a lot of, I have a lot of friends who they'll write and they'll spend like 37 minutes, an hour and a half trying to get a transition writer just stuck on a word. And and that's fine if you can write every day. But if you have a limited schedule, I don't know that that level of micro attention is, is helping you that much. I mean, that's how I feel. Writing at the speed of fun. I love no, that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a flow every writer wants to get into, if possible. Um, so in the book, you also talk about revising being kind of this superpower and and maybe the difference between a writer who is published and a writer who maybe struggles with that and, and faces that rejection, which all writers do. What do you mean by that? Like, what is, uh, what, what's so critical about revising and that, that after you write at the speed of fun, you come back <laughs> in and, yeah. and you're doing that surgeon like work, which is, which is hard work. Yeah. I think revision is slow. Um, you revise at the speed of torturous pain. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I think, I mean, this is just not a secret. Like today's agents and acquiring edits are so strapped for time. And I certainly in the last couple of years have been noticing like bloated books out in the world, you know, mm-hmm. where you get to a middle or somewhere, somewhere around the 75% mark. And you're like, where was the editor? 
you know, yeah. were they on Fire Island? Like, what happened here? <laughs> like, there's a 10,000, 15,000 words too much. And, you know, it could be the same with online editors or whatever. There's just like not quite as much time available, not, not, not across the board, obviously, but certainly at big fives where editors are being asked to do so much, you know, they're now in publicity and marketing right. and they're in meetings all day long. And, mm-hmm. and again, not saying this is the truth for everyone. And it absolutely wasn't the truth for any of my editors, but I have heard from people that they felt that their manuscripts went out somewhat unprotected, that they didn't necessarily get the level of attention that they wished. And that, you know, people have said to me, if I could go back again, and I think, gosh, that's not, it's not a place you want to be because you can't go back again. You can't even really change your paperback. And then of course, if you're trying to get an agent, you know, you're just starting out, you, there's so much competition today because there's just a lot of people who are really good. They've been honing their skills online in a way that when I was coming up, you could submit to actual magazines or newspapers, but you couldn't start writing for Jezebel or something when you were really young. And so there's just a lot of very young people who've been writing a long time, understand their voice, have used social media um, as a revision tool to find, like to kind of calibrate what's working and what's not. And you're up against all this competition. So if you can revise, for example, your own query letter, really nail your first three chapters all by yourself, be quite critical of yourself and not indulgent. Obviously, you're getting a massive leg up and are more likely to attract an agent, thus more likely to attract an editor. And also when you have a book come out, you're asked to do so many off the book pieces and and by that, for people who don't know what that means, you're asked to write these essays or place articles that sort of tango with your book's themes without directly promoting your book. And a lot of those pieces, you're sort of flying solo, you know, and you don't want to be putting junky content out there. So again, I think if you can learn to self-edit, it's just such an important skill, especially as you go forward writing other books. I think you, yeah, you need to be able to turn around and interrogate yourself and (laughs) turn from your, your own cheerleader to uh devil's advocate pretty quickly <laughs> would you recommend like a certain number of revisions like especially for a manuscript um i know it probably depends on your writing ability and yeah i mean i don't know i think that's so personal for different people yeah. for me it's probably seven but seven mm-hmm. of me thinking like it's ready to go to my agent. <laughs> you know, I'm not talking about like they're coming out of my printer. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I'm talking like it's been seven times where I actually think that this is excellent. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that might represent someone else's 32. I don't know. <laughs> but not your first. Definitely not your first. No, that's good because I think we, you know, we're all moving so much faster than we used to. And so yeah. the urge to get your work out there should maybe be pulled back a little bit and, and have more intention. It's also for better, for worse, it's a little too easy to yeah. do. Like I, when I was querying for agents, it was still early enough that I had to, I had to mail letters. I had to, I right. mean, oh. actually find a printer, mail a letter if they wanted the three, ch- I mean, towards the end, like, you know, there was hot mail or whatever, but, but I was getting rejection. I still have them. I looked at them the other day. I was getting rejections from agents, you know, in an em- it mailed to me in wow. this essay, yeah. essay, you know, the self-addressed and the and SACE, yeah. the SACE, <laughs> right? And and ultimately, it sort of showed me how important of a step this was. The whole thing felt really exciting, but also I couldn't just mail off any old thing. You know, I couldn't come home inebriated one evening and say, you know what, screw it. I think it's ready. I'm going to send it to an agent, <laughs> which now you can do. I mean, people have shared queries with me that they've received that I mean just unbelievable you know people saying like oh I think I write really good diary entries so maybe you I'll send you my photocopies of my journal and you can find a book like things you just you really do wonder if the person is sober um and that's a lot harder to do if you have to go to Kinko's and print something Uh out and mail it and wait, you know, and again, the scarcity of time issue, because anybody can email an agent these days. 
unfortunately, most people are, right? They're not really yeah. <laughs> taking the time to deliberate about yes. why. <laughs> I mean, yes. some people are, but a lot of people are just firing that off <laughs> and then following up two days later. And then yep. that's something I work with writers who are um, querying. And I always say to them, like, okay, sit with me a moment. I'm going to walk you to a desk and open a computer. And you are mm-hmm. going to imagine an inbox with 300 queries, <laughs> you know, from yeah. total strangers. And like, I need you to see that because your email is one of those. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, people just don't, it feels so important when you finish up. It feels so, so important and so urgent but it'll always be the most urgent for you and nobody else. <laughs> right. That's such good advice too. <laughs> I mean, that really is, that's the reality of it for agents, for editors, for others. Uh, they're looking through lots and lots of content. So that revising superpower is super important. And, and I wonder also, could you take us into the editorial process a little bit working with your editors, and I imagine it's different for fiction mm-hmm. and nonfiction, but you know, what, how, once you how have a book deal, yeah, how important is that process and that person in in the development of of the book? I mean, to step back uh, a little bit, pre-editor, some people's agents work with them on developmental edits. Um, some don't. Some some people have an agent. You know, they say, "Call me when it's ready," and then they go try to sell it. My agent, um, and I think a lot of agents are doing this these days. She works with me. Uh, to develop the draft to a place where she felt like it couldn't be said no to, you know? So I think that's an important, I want to say distinguishment. That is not a word. (laughs) An important (laughs) difference. You know, what's the funny thing about the book deal is a lot of times, if there's more than one editor interested, you have these phone calls or sit down meetings where they praise you and flatter you (laughs) and it's all good. And then once you sign you get pretty quickly or an editorial letter, I guess is what they call it. That's like, so I do like you and I do like the book, but there's much <laughs> wrong with it. And, and so that's sort of the first step is realizing that actually they saw potential in this, but it's not quite ready for everyone. It's different, but your initial weeks or months with your editor will be a pretty close relationship where you are incorporating their edits, um, but deciding whether or not you agree with everything, perhaps you don't. And then, you know, eventually you start, you'll start working with a, hopefully, hopefully start working with a copy editor who's pointing out inconsistencies or you're, I don't know, driving a car with snow tires and it's August or funny things like that. (laughs) So your relationship with your editor is very editorial at the beginning. And the closer Mm -hmm. you get to pub, your editor almost becomes like your agent, you know, they will be the person who sort of interfaces with you about the cover and marketing efforts normally. But for most people in the beginning, it's a really pleasurable experience. I mean, my editor, Sally Kim, for my first two books, I love, she would actually send me handwritten edits, which I loved. I love that. But I think most people work with track changes now. Yeah, that's so rare, but so cool. Yeah, it was super cool. Although I've always panicked that they would get lost in the mail. I had an editor who worked in Google Docs, which I, okay. I had a lot of pushback. Against. <laughs> I, I did not like that. But there's a yeah. little bit of everything now, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but it's a really pleasurable, intimate experience for most people. If your editor has no edits, I think that is a bad sign. <laughs> it's a very bad sign. <laughs> I'd love to hear what your motivation was, I guess, for writing before and after the book deal. I imagine it was a, a pretty huge uh, project to tackle. It's a significant <laughs> yes. size book. And what are you know, the most important insights that you hope people will take away? Well, I, the reason that I wrote the book, I guess that response would be twofold. Number one, it just felt very urgent for me, like emotionally urgent and, and not for myself, just for like <laughs> all writers I had started to notice that, you know, we're in this culture where you're truly led to believe that getting a book deal is the ultimate dream and that the sort of rainbow ends there. And Mm -hmm. there's tons of resource. I mean, look at the MFA program. The MFA program Mm -hmm. more or less exists so that people can get a book deal. But I had started to hear and recognize that nobody in MF, well, I shouldn't say nobody, what do I know? But, but most people in MFA programs 
Um, no one is talking to these young writers about how hard it is to make a living, you know, how restricted the academic market is, all that stuff. And there was absolutely just no resources available to people who did get a book deal. You know, you were literally supposed to sign the document, put up your excited social media post and then shut up you know, until the book (laughs) came out and there was nowhere to go with your doubts, your questions. Mm -hmm. Of course you can ask your agent, but that's just one person, you know, and I wanted other people to not feel like I did when my first book came out where I just had no, you know, I was a real goody two shoes, good student. I'd lived most of my life getting grades that showed me, oh, you're doing this right. Whereas with the book, I was like, I don't even, I don't understand what success is like I don't I don't understand anything I was doing book events and there didn't seem to be a lot of people there and so I thought I was a failure and little did I know everyone else had these weird book events as well Mm -hmm. um so partly it was sort of an emotional psychosomatic I guess benevolent act but but also it didn't exist right just didn't exist so I thought well shoot you know nobody else has written this I'm gonna do (laughs) And I felt like I was in a, I mean, the book has almost 175 contributors. So it's in no way a memoir. Obviously, I'm really drawing from other people's experiences. But I did feel like I've self published. um, I have a chapbook. I have two books with the big fives. I have two books with independent presses. I don't have an MFA. I had no writing friends for a really long time. I live in a rural area. So I did feel like I had, I'm not going to say the right, you know, but certainly a perspective that allowed me to come at this question of what it's like to be a published author from a place that would have been different if I'd studied English in college and went right to an MFA and, you know, lived in New York City and on and on and on. And then, oh gosh, the most important insight, again, twofold response. I think the most important thing is to never expect to make a livable wage from your creative mm. writing mm. and to either maintain some other stream of income, you know, don't quit your day job or, hey, if your parents want to help you, let them help you if they, <laughs> or let them help me. I don't know. Let them help uh. someone else. Um, <laughs> use your skills. How can you use your creative writing skills to earn some money? But do protect yourself against the idea that you can make money off of your writing. Of course, that's the hope. But if you come out of the gate expecting that, you're going to have problems. And then I think the second insight is your relationship with your own writing matters more than anything else. It matters more than what the gatekeepers think of it. matters more than the reviews. There will come times where you are asked to defend your own choices. And sometimes you're right. You know, mm-hmm. not always, but sometimes, but you need to feel good about your writing. You need to feel joy. I hope that people feel joy. It, it can be fun. And if it's not feeling like any of those things, I would interrogate what's going on. The answer is probably because you're mm-hmm. trying to make money <laughs> off of it. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult business and it defies expectations all the time and and the statistics are staggering, but you, you kind of allude to this in in what you just said, um, that the platform and marketing and promotion and publicity part of writing a book is something that a lot of authors don't think about. I think now more than ever, people are trying to get attention for everything on social media and everywhere else. Um, what do you think, authors, new authors in particular need to know about, you know, I mean, they've written the book, the book is coming out. What, what's, what's the second half of that journey like, but you know, what, what kind of advice would you have for authors? I guess to prepare yourself, like a lot is going to be asked of you, you know, um, you're going to be asked to write a lot. You're going to be asked to come up with like campaign ideas, social media ideas. It's hard question because for your first book, if you can, you know, unless you're caring for like an ailing parent or you've just had a baby or something like, I do think that for your first book, you should be a game player and try to do almost all the things so that going forward, you can have sussed out what, what feels good and what doesn't. That being said, for people who aren't on social media at all, and if you do have a publisher who's, let's say, putting the pressure on, or just, you can tell that they really would like you to be on it. I, 
I tell people like, choose one place where you Mm -hmm. think you're not going to be miserable. Don't do them all. You know, maybe it's Instagram, maybe just give it a chance because you'd have to compromise a little bit. Rare is the author who can come out of the gate saying, I am putting no thought into who I know. I'm not going to think about my network. I'm not going to write the off the book pieces. That's that's a hard stance, I think, as a yeah. debut author. Mm-hmm. Um, your publisher wants to know how they can help you help yourself. So, you know, it's worth meeting them at least halfway. So again, you do not have to, but if you're tempted to acquiesce a little bit, choose one platform. Spending lots of time with social media is not going to help you. (laughs) It's much better to get out there in the real world and make relationships with actual booksellers and writers. And social media is great. It has a lot of pros, but it's not a very healthy place for people who are about to have a book come out or are in publication mode. Because inevitably, I mean, show me the person who goes on to you know, Twitter in a good mood and leaves in a good mood when they have a book out. <laughs> Nobody, That's right. no yeah. one. Inevitably you go there and you're going to post some like hashtag grateful piece of good news. And then you go in and you see that so-and-so has gotten the thing you want or, you know, was mm-hmm. invited to a festival mm-hmm. that apparently everyone's going to that you didn't even know about. And um, where's that gotten you? Now you're probably unable to write for the rest of the day. So great. <laughs> Yeah, it's a tricky part of the the business for sure. But, uh, you know, and I, I, I think gone are the days where you can just write your manuscript and and kind of put it out into the world and hope that people discover it, which is which is a bummer. But, you know, I guess it's the reality. I think those exceptions still exist. But I will say something funny, and I'm not going to name the person I'm not going to throw anyone <laughs> under the bus, but a very well known author who is very well known for not being on social media, I wrote something about a compliment about that person the other day. And within, I don't know, a half hour, I had an email from that person huh. that they'd seen it, you know, and I think they might have like a fake account or something. So oh, I, like, tabs. I was like, Oh my God, this world, this world that we're in, you know, it was <laughs> a little depressing. I think that's one thing I'm curious about with you, Courtney, is, you know, you've published really pretty different books. Your your novels are are all pretty unique in style. Um, and then now you have before and after the book deal. So how have you cultivated a consistent audience um, or even author brand? I don't know if you'd use that wording, but, you know, how have you continued to um, develop that throughout your journey yeah. as a writer? First of all, I don't know if I have. No, I really, I don't look at my sales numbers. Um, So I have no idea, actually. But if anything, I think that this fourth book will help people understand why I wrote the other ones. Because there is a through line. All of my books deal with creativity. You know, in the first novel, I'm having so much fun here without you. The main character was an artist. Um, In the second trend forecaster, which is actually a really creative line of work. In the third, a want-to-be artist, the daughter of an art collector. And then this one, of course, it's about the creative process. And right now I'm working on a memoir that is about, I guess, my own creative process. So creativity and what happens to you when you try to monetize creativity is very, very interesting to me. So I think if I have a brand, that's the brand. And I think that this book I don't know, elevates that, that quest that I'm on. But other than that, I mean, I have no idea. This book I had said, um, you know, to Julie Button, my editor from before and after the book deal, like, I wonder if people do decide that they like my tone of voice and then they pick up Costa Alegre. Are they going to have whiplash, you know, because that's historical fiction. But I don't know. All of my books are really voicey. So no, I don't have any idea. I mean, I don't know what I have. I don't have like massive follower numbers on social media or anything. So I don't think that I have necessarily a brand the way that other people do. I don't know that that's my question to answer. Maybe someone else will tell me whether or not I have a brand. (laughs) Well, I think your advice of not looking at book sales is actually a really good one. Whatever those sales are, I think that's good advice. And I mean, this book is incredibly 
helpful is going to be so many people who are helped by this, who are at so many stages in the process. And it's super robust. Like you have a lot of different content from a lot of different people and you've woven all these perspectives of different writers and authors and other people into this book, which I imagine was really complicated and difficult to gain permission, get content. How did all that go? Where did that idea come from? Um, I think it's going to be massively helpful for writers. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's very exhaustive. Um, I definitely wanted high low, you know, I wanted to talk about depression, I wanted to talk about substance abuse, I wanted to talk about what to pack on tour, you know, so we go from the deeply important to the more superficial, because these questions all come up. As for I mean, I really have to give credit to my contributors, because they were just a delight. Rare was the person who said no, I don't have time. My conversations, a lot of these interviews were done by phone. Almost everyone we talked an hour. People really, it didn't matter if they were editors, agents, writers, people really wanted to talk about this stuff. But they had not, especially people with success, are not given the opportunity to, you know, voice doubt or regret. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to be just so, it's a, it's a privilege to publish, and that's true, but that puts us in a position where we're not allowed to complain (laughs) so um getting and then the permissions i just um would send people once their contribution was formatted i would send them the couple of uh, let's say five pages where it was showing up so they could be comfortable with the way that it was appearing and they would sign off on that and it was amazing because a lot of people were really really candid and so there were definitely a few who i thought i'm sending this off and they're going to be like i can't believe i said that but yeah. I think that happened once, you know, um, it was sort of amazing. I really am so thankful for how brave and candid people were. Now, the editor, most of the editors did not want their names used, I think, for very you know obvious reasons. But at least they talked to me because um, that was such an important component. And then as for the, how the rest of the book came together, I wrote the table of contents first mm. and then underneath it, each sort of section I would write out bullet points of like okay this will be my intro use an anecdote about whatever normally they were personal anecdotes or I'd say lead with you know an anecdote from someone else and I'd have placeholders for the contributors that I wanted and sometimes it was an actual person and then sometimes it was an archetype so I remember for the two book deal section writing lead with someone who had a positive two book deal experience close with someone who had a negative two book deal experience and then it was a question of setting out and finding those people I definitely had you know friends or colleagues in mind uh that I wanted to contribute who because I knew that they would be great contributors but then I also protected myself against only using friends and Catapult was extremely helpful for that because as a you know writing school they just had an exhaustive list of, of people to contact and a lot of contacts within academia. And that's where I had no contacts because I'm not attached, you know, to any one institution. So they were a really, really good partner that way. And then, of course, when I interviewed people, they'd say, oh, my gosh, you know who you have to talk to is this person and this person. So it was really yeah. delightful because, I mean, listen, it was. It was a tremendous amount of work. But normally when you're writing a project, it's so lonely. And for this one, yeah. I was like, having really cool conversations with, you know, some of my heroes in the morning and then I transcribe it and drop it into the, you know, content blocks in the afternoon. And and so it was not lonely at all. It was incredibly social. Love that. So, um, to pivot just a little bit, you know, we, we are absolutely book lovers here and we'd love it if you would just tell us about a book or a couple of books that had a really major impact on you as a writer or even as a person, um, a book that changed your mind or maybe even your trajectory. Um, let's see, trajectory wise, it's when I started to realize that literary fiction could be funny. That, that that changed my course because I was reading in my 20s a lot of like Raymond Carver, Hemingway, you know, I'm from Connecticut. So it's like, <laughs> I don't know. And also I, I didn't do an MFA or anything. So it was like white men, you know, you looked at the hundred yes. notable books of the yeah. century and I was trying to read them and mostly they were dead white men. So that was the path I started on and it took me 
a while um, to, to get off of it. But that being said, I, I am going to mention a living white man who I remember Martin Amos's The Information being really pivotal for me because it was it wasn't super accessible. But like once I understood the tone of voice, it took me a couple reads. But the humor in that I thought was so sort of high end and clever and like I couldn't really discern a plot and I I don't know I hadn't read a book like that so and I read the confederacy of dunces at the same time I started reading Mark Lehner <laughs> like again I'm sorry for my former self that these are all white men but you know <laughs> I'm not gonna lie that's what I read um but I would like to say that the book that accompanied me all the way across the country back Portland Oregon home is my autobiography of Carson McCullers by Jen Chaplins. Um, and that's a Tin House book. And this is like an unbelievable book. It's so cool. It's it's her quest to kind of get to know Carson McCullers. And Jen is 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 pretty convinced that um that Carson McCullers was definitely a lesbian, but she's also aware that she's trying to prove that because of some sort of personal bias. And it's just an incredible book. It's so readable, even though it's dealing with difficult, dense issues. Um, so I'm really enjoying that particular book right now. Yeah, that sounds wow. fascinating. That's a, yeah, that's a good list of, of books to check out as well. Um, now, Courtney, we're, we're kind of coming to the end here, but I have two last things I want to ask you. And this has been delightful and super, super helpful. Um, but if you're able to share first, what are you working on next? And then second, where can people find you if they want to come find you online? And, uh, and I hear you have a newsletter also that you do. What is, what is that about? So let's see, I'm working, well, I'm working on promoting my book right now. I would, I, but I'm eager <laughs> to get back to a memoir, working on a memoir about a braided memoir about depression. Um, people can find me. I am for the moment on all the things I'm, I'm tempted to kind of <laughs> disappear for a while, but I'm on all the social media things. My website is CourtneyMom.com, And that's where you can sign up for my newsletter called get published, stay published. And that's free. And um, once a month, I highlight a different publishing professional about a specific theme. And then I send twice a month or something, either writing or publishing tips. So that's through CourtneyMom.com, get published, stay published. And I also have all my tour dates there and pretty actively touring for Costa Alegre and before and after the book deal. So pretty easy to find, find out on the road. <laughs> well, congratulations awesome. on the new book. Yes. Uh, I think it's going to be massively helpful for so many people. Well, and, thank and thanks you. for spending a, a few minutes with us today. It was it's really, my pleasure. Really thank you for having me. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to today's episode of On Publishing. If you loved what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and post a review. This episode was edited by Joey Howell, and the music was provided by Not The King. And remember, until next time, one book can change everything.